book of Revelation, looking at the church in Sardis this morning. And so we're in this interesting section where Jesus is going along and he is um, inspecting each church. And this serves as a nice inspection of the church, not just these specific churches, but the church across the entire church age. Okay, beginning with Pentecost and going until the future return of Jesus. We're somewhere in the middle. I think somewhere in the latter part of that section, right? But who knows really, right? So, so this is instructive to us on a lot of levels. And I think one of the things that I just want to point out as we're kind of in the middle here, that we don't get lost in the weeds on this, which is the underlying message of this is that it's not about us. We tend to want to customize church life around us in a way that meets our desires, our needs, our wants, our preferences, right? And we, we want to customize our church life experience around the image of Ben or the image of Gloria Cotton. The image of Gloria Cotton would be an improvement <laughs> over the image of Ben, but it's still not the image of Christ, right? And so just the idea that Jesus is, is so in charge that he, without apology, can come to your church or the church and say, I like this, I like this, and I don't like this, tells us something about what this is about. It's about him. And it's about being conformed to his image and it's about his glory. It's not about us, okay? It's very just, just the very idea that this is here is very corrective, right? And it's why I think there's a, at least I feel, I don't know about you, a sort of low-level discomfort with this part of Revelation. I never liked it when my teacher would sit over my shoulder while I took a test or did homework because it makes you a little nervous, right? And that's kind of what this is like. And so up until this point, each church has been, you've been conditioned to expect a certain pattern, right? We've seen this over and over again. Jesus reminds us that he's the Christ, John's vision at the beginning of the section. He then commends the church for something positive. Well done on this, right? And then, uh, and then he tells them to repent for something. He criticizes them for something. And then he gives a promise to those that repent. He says, to those that overcome I promise this wonderful blessing. Okay, that's been the pattern over and over and over and over again until we get to Sardis, right? With Sardis, there's a difference, and I want you to look for it, okay? So let's read this, Revelation chapter 3. We'll read the first four verses to begin with. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, okay? Meaning, I am the Christ, that you saw in the beginning of this section and with the flaming or the flaming eyes and the white hair and all of that, okay? Then he says, I know your works. You have been, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now what do you not see there that we've seen in every other case? There is nothing positive. There's no commendation. 
He just starts with a rebuke. And we read this nowhere to be found in this section. Sardis, there's nothing Jesus can find good to say. That is scary. It's, this church is as good as dead. There are only a few remaining parts, a few remaining people that have not soiled their garments, he says. There's only a few real believers left among you, and they are about to die. You're right on death's door as a church. If the church does not wake from its slumber, but what is barely alive will soon die and will be lost. It's often said that Matthew 7.21 is the scariest scripture. I think it might be. Matthew 7.21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then he goes on to, to say when the people reply back, But Lord, we cast demons out in your name. We did all these great things in your name. We, aren't we like the real thing? And he says, Depart from me. I never knew you. The idea being that it's possible to, be, to pretend to be a Christian and even do great works in the name of Jesus and not actually be a real Christian. That is a frightening reality. Jesus is basically saying the same thing to this church. He says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Meaning, everyone around you thinks that you're this, this alive, living, prosperous, fruitful church. But when I look at you, I see no life. I see death. It's the same idea as what he says to, in Matthew 7. It's scary. It ought, to, it ought to shake us a little bit. He's, tr he's saying, look at yourself, really. <laughs> right? What are, you, are you alive or are you dead? So how can it be that a church would appear alive when it's actually dead? 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. This is Paul is going to prophesy a similar thing. He says, but understand this, that in the last days, that's, that's now, the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Mm -mm -mm. Interesting how that's just put right in that list. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Verse 5, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. That is a perfect description of this age, is it not? Not just 2019, but also AD 70, <laughs> AD 90, all the way up and will be until Christ's return. But look at verse 5, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. It's this, he's prophesying the same thing Jesus does here. He's saying there's going to be churches that appear, right, on the outside to be godly. 
They look godly, but on the inside there's a denial of its power, meaning the denial of God himself. What is a church other than a collection of Christians? Right? And so the church in Sardis, or this type of church, is a church that is filled with people who have an appearance of godliness, but no godliness within. I think a great example is Ananias and Sapphira. <laughs> I'm just doing all the scary stories today. Right? <laughs> in Acts 5, it tells the story of a man and a wife named Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias sold some property and gave it to the church to be used to care for the poor. And he reported that he had given all the money he made from the sale of the property. That he lied. Okay? So he goes out and he sells some property. And he says, here's all the money I made from the sale of that property. When in fact, it was not all the money he made from the sale of that property. He kept back some for himself. And he and his wife made that decision together. It's very clear in Acts 5 that they made that decision together. So he comes to Peter and the other leaders of the work there, and he puts the money down in private, and he says, here's all the money. Peter knew it by the spirit that he was lying and confronted him about the lie. He says, why'd you lie? You didn't have to. You didn't have to do any of this. You didn't have to sell your property, you didn't and you, or you could have sold it and just gave whatever you felt you should give. No one made you do this. You lied not to me, but to God. And he tells him this, and then Ananias falls down dead right there. How's that for church discipline? Now think about this for a minute. What would that do to the church? If that little lie, I mean, come on. That's not a big lie. It's a little bitty one. He still did a good thing. You know that's what Ananias was thinking. I still did a good thing. I didn't have to do this. I did it. So I, it's just a little lie. And that little lie, he lies to God and he just falls down dead. But it gets worse. Sapphira comes later. I guess Peter and them called for her. Peter tests her, asks her the same question. He gives her a chance. That's grace. Gives her a chance. If she had said, yes, we, he lied. And if she had repented, the, the implication is that she wouldn't have died. He tests her. She lies just like her husband did. And she falls down dead in the same spot. Acts 5, 9 through 11. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. We'll return to that phrase in a few minutes. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. I mean, wouldn't it? Boy, taking up the offering would become a solemn occasion. Everybody's... I just want to tell everybody exactly what I'm giving. No more, no less. Just to be clear, right? That's how you would feel. This, that's the fear of God, right? Came upon them. 
What was their problem? What was their sin? Their sin was trying to appear more godly than they actually were. They were lying to God about their godliness. They were trying to appear more generous than they actually were. What they cared about was the outward appearance of godliness, not the source of their godliness on the inside. This is the sin of Sardis. This is what Jesus is concerned with, and it's why he calls them a dead and dying church. So how can we modernize this a little bit, the idea of Sardis? Because that's far away. That's just church way back when, right? I would say the church in Sardis is a church engaged in a lot of religious activity, community outreach, dynamic worship services, motivational preaching, amen, exciting children and youth ministries, delicious fellowship meals, beautiful facilities, paved parking lots. Oh, wait a minute, pastor, you're getting a little close to my toes. Attractive worship leaders. Well, there's one we don't have, all right? <laughs> yes. They had decades of tradition. Decades, if not centuries, of tradition. A Bible school for training future leaders. Some members are so generous that they sold their property and gave all the money to the church. They hold a sound doctrine and make sure that every member of their faith community understands their statement of faith and memorizes their vision and mission statements. Their worship services are like being on heaven's doorstep with prophecies, weeping, and goosebumps commonplace. Demons are often cast out. People drive from miles away, even other countries, to bring their sick loved ones to be healed and delivered. Books, blogs, magazine articles are written. Documentary films are made. Christianity Today reports revival in Sardis. It looks like it, doesn't it? Yet Christ the King says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you were dead. See, most of the things that we look at as success in church world have nothing to do with success are not the things that Jesus looks at as success. I don't even say anything about the size of the church because that's, that's the low-hanging fruit. But isn't that true? Some, some churches feel that because they're large, they have a lot of people, that that must mean that God is pleased with them. Other churches think that because they're small in number, that must mean that they're really authentic and God must be pleased with them because they didn't sell out like those big churches did. You're the number of people sitting in the room at the same time has zero to do with how actually fruitful and faithful you are as a church. One of the things that's interesting about this, too, that is missing is not just the commendation, but it's also that there's no mention of persecution. I think that's fascinating. Every other church, even the bad ones, they got really heavily rebuked. 
persecution is mentioned. Either they're being faithful in the face of persecution, or they're not being faithful in the face of persecution. But in Sardis, there's no persecution. Why is that? I would say it's because they're not doing anything that would get any attention at all from the world. They are so watered down and innocuous and impotent as a church that they don't, it's like they're a non-entity to the world around them. So the other cities are getting persecuted. It's not like paganism wasn't a thing in Sardis. It's one of the most pagan places in the world at the time. This was not a Christianized city, okay? It's fascinating. Could it be that they're so dead that they simply are unnoticeable to the culture around them? Isn't that what dead people do? They do nothing. (laughs) They just lay there motionless. So how might you know if you're alive or just dead without knowing it? Which is a frightening reality, isn't it? Could I be dead and not know it? It seems like Sardis thought they were doing great. So a dying church, let's just define it or try to define it a little bit. First, a definition. Based on Revelation 3, a dead church, not to state the obvious, but we should state the obvious, is a church made up of dead Christians. All right? It's not a church that has different methods or has a different, one church has a steeple and the other doesn't. Uh, or, Or one has, you know, modern worship and the other has traditional worship. Or one's, you know, one sings only out of the Psalms and the others don't. It's not one, you know, it's, it's none of those things. A dead church is a church that is made up of dead Christians. That's it. So all the other judgments you may have about what a living church and a dead church is, they're, they're terrible, right? It's because what's a church? It's just Christians. It's just people, right? So we have to define it the way Jesus would define it, which is it's a collection of dead people. A dead church is a collection of dead Christians, all right? So a dying church values anointing and gifting over character. So the people that can, are the best speakers or get see the most healings, and don't forget Matthew 7. Lord, we cast demons out in your name. We did great works in your name. And he says, depart from me, I didn't know you. So these are, this is not a church. You can't even say that the church with miracles is the alive church and the church with no miracles is not. Sorry. Even that's a terrible indication. The working of miracles is not any indication of the character of the person doing the praying. It's an indication of the character of Christ. That God wants to heal his people, and he'll do it even through a messed up person. It is not an indication of the holiness or the godliness of the person who performed the miracle. Never, ever get that confused. People get confused about that, and they wonder how these messed up people run these revivals, and some of those people actually get healed, and it really messes people up. A dying church believes their attendance size, big or small, is a sign of God's pleasure and blessing, not their obedience to his word or desire to conform to his image. I already said that. I jumped ahead. A dying church credits their own wisdom and spirituality for what God alone has blessed them with. Look at how well we're doing. 
sure am glad we implemented that small group program. Look at what it's done to our numbers. Wow. What else can, what, else, what other program can we inst institute that would also increase our numbers? This is really, really working. That's the spirit of pragmatism, which is from hell. Your wisdom, our collective wisdom, all put together, all the wisdom and spirituality in this room piled up together and focused like a laser on one thing still will not produce any spiritual life. It must come from the Holy Spirit or it's not alive. It doesn't mean we don't work hard. It's just that we need God to move. and Without him, there's just no use, right? A dying church obeys God only when it involves doing things they already wanted to do anyway. Look at how I'm obeying God. He told me to do this thing that I wanted to do anyway. What about when God tells you to do things or tells us to do things that we don't want to do, that we'd rather avoid? What do we do then? Again, we're talking about external appearance of godliness with no with well, while denying his power a dying church is fully conformed to the world in private while pretending to conform to christ in public what is it they say character is what you do in private when no one can see that's who you really are and that's who a church really is. It's what a church does in private when no one else can see is what defines it. Not by the words the preacher says <laughs> or the eloquence of your prayers or your religious activity. A dying church preaches Christian values with no attempt to actually live them. It's amazing to me how these churches that do things like protest funerals. They're preaching, their whole thing is Christian values, family values. But what they actually do is the opposite. And it's indefensible. A dying church preaches faith without works or works without faith. Faith without works, meaning you know, you could, you could talk about this in terms of, like, being versus doing. I'm just being God's kid. And just be, man. Just be. Just be in the presence of God. You ever been in the presence of God, like, really, and he did not tell you to do something? Ever? Has there ever been a time when you've read the word or prayed and then listened for a response? And you did not walk away from that without some conviction to do something, right? So yes, be. Be in the presence of God. Enjoy your sonship. Enjoy your daughtership. Enjoy the grace of God. Be. just with. I don't have to do anything to earn his favor. I don't have to do anything to earn his forgiveness. But he's going to say, now that we got that sorted out, go do this, right? That's... Faith without works. Works without faith is also terrible. It doesn't matter 
your relationship with Jesus. Just go do the stuff. Just go do it. Get to work. And if you don't do this stuff, he's going to be really mad. He's going to be really mad at you. Faith without works and works without faith. Go read James 2, I dare you. So one produces dead faith, the other produces dead works, and they're both dead, right? What do dead things produce? Nothing, right? A dying church does not practice church discipline on any level. We talked about church discipline last week. A dying church doesn't care about the holiness of its body. It doesn't ever say, a dead Christian doesn't say to his dead Christian friend, hey, you sure you should do that? Are you sure you should talk that way? Are you sure you should neglect your wife that way? Are you sure? Can we, maybe we should talk about, maybe we should look at what the Bible says about this. That's not what dead people do. A a dead and dying church can read about Sardis without worrying at all if, quote, the feet of those who have buried Sardis are at the door waiting to carry them out as well. It's interesting when just reading commentaries and articles and whatnot about this, about Sardis, I found only one that questioned whether or not his church might be like Sardis. Every other, every, even people I really like and respect used it as an opportunity to rant about the state of the American church. How terrible these other whatever churches are. I'm not going to name any names, but I'm going to describe this church in such detail that you know exactly who I'm talking about. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to call anybody out, but here's so much that he lives on this street with this address. He looks exactly like this, and these are the last four topics of his last four sermons. <laughs> Nobody wants to question whether or not they are Sardis, whether or not they are a Pharisee or not. It's too scary. And so those words that Peter says to Sapphira, the feet of those who have buried your husband are waiting at the door to carry you out. That should shake us a little. I'm not trying to get you to go into full despair mode. Some of you are bent that way anyway. But we are meant to ask the questions. Wouldn't, imagine if you were one of those guys. This is what I think about. If I'm one of those guys that had to just buried Ananias. And you're outside, you just buried him, the ground is still soft, and you're going, can you believe this? When was the last time you tithed? (laughs) Right? And you're talking about it, and then you hear, hey, hey guys, Peter needs you to come back. What? All right, so you you walk back into the room, you just drug Ananias out of, three hours later, you're back in the room, and his wife, Sapphira, is dead for the same reason. What would you do? How would you respond to that? You would immediately and wisely check yourself. (laughs) And that's what we're meant to do here, right? We're not meant to just go, yeah, churches like that are terrible. Man, I just can't, I can't understand it. 
we're meant to look at ourselves and be a little scared. I don't believe we're a dead church, okay? We really don't. But I say that with fear and trembling. Because truth is, we could become one. Well, you understand that? As good as you feel like this might be, I hope all of you feel like this is great. I do. I love coming here. I would come to this church even if I wasn't the pastor. And I would tell people. I can't say this to people right now because, because I'm the pastor, but if I was just one of you, I'd be telling people this is the best church in town. I love it. <laughs> but I'm not saying that. But if I was you, I'd be saying that. Right? You know, you know how I feel, you know what I mean? You want to be arrogant, but you love I love it. But it would take almost nothing. You know what it would take? It would take Jesus taking his hand off. And all of us would just go dead. We would go, this whole thing could fall apart. Now, it's not going to because I believe Jesus is faithful. And he holds this church in his hand. But there is a fear and trembling that should be in us all the time. That we never get so arrogant that we start to think all of this is because of how awesome we are. We crack the code on church life. We got just the right balance of biblical preaching and dynamic worship and deep, wonderful, faithful training of children and youth. And we got the sign in the parking lot just right. And our worship leader is really moderately handsome. Maybe he's wear tighter jeans and a v-neck t-shirt we'd be we'd be set maybe a faux hawk or something i don't know say the word like more often i don't know revelation 3 5 to 6 It says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's a pretty great promise. The one who conquers, that just means the one who are really Christians. The real followers of, of Christ. Jesus himself, the one with the flaming eyes and the white hair, the sword out of his mouth, the one with all the authority, all the power, all the glory, he is the one who writes your name in the book and then declares your name before his Father and all the angels in heaven. You're going to get, you're going to, get to hear that. Amen. Think about it. Not you standing there with all of your courage, and all of your good works standing behind you and declaring your own name to the Father, you're going to be scared to death. See my name, Jesus? See my name. Right? And then he shouts your name to the Father. And all the angels hear your name declared as being in the book of life and redeemed and bought by Christ himself. And the angels are going, what? That guy? Just amazed 
The love of Christ goes that far. Yes, it does. Even him. Now, what are you going to rejoice in? That? Or your awesome, I don't know, church things? What do you rejoice in? Those who are truly his will always be his. This is a great promise to those in Sardis that remain faithful to Christ. So a couple of points of application here that I want to pray for. One is if you're pretending to be a follower of Christ, but you're not one, please stop pretending. I don't care if you've been acting like a Christian your whole life and you know you're not. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and it has just hit you all of a sudden that you're not. That's a tricky thing to say to a group of people. Because some of you have a hard time grappling with grace, right? And so you're constantly wondering if Jesus loves you or not. And so when the preacher says, you know, look at your belly button for a minute and consider if you're a real thing or not. You go down the toilet. Like, you don't just look. You just dive down into the depths of despair. Don't do that. But just don't pretend. Don't fake it. I suspect that more typical, the more typical category of person here this morning is the Christian that simply puts too much stock in the external religious things while neglecting the things that really matter to God. You determine what is spiritually alive or dead by the wrong evidence. You judge churches, you judge yourself, and judge each other by the wrong things. Being a follower of Christ is far more important to Jesus than simply looking like one. Just stop pretending. Don't pretend to be alive when you're dead. Whether there's some area of your life that's kind of stinky, and you just kind of go, well, I'm going to pretend like that's not dead. I'm going to cover that over with religious activity and pretend like everything's fine at home. My marriage is fine. What are you talking about? It's fine. Whenever somebody asks you how you're doing, your voice goes up a good octave. I'm doing great. <clears throat> doing fine. Stop that. All of us would do well, I think, this morning to throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus in worship and prayer, asking him to reveal any falsehood in us, and once again, asking him to preserve our faith in him until the end. So this would be my answer to those of you who are, might wrongly question your salvation. The answer is not to try to convince yourself that you are one. The answer is to go to Christ and say, would you hold me? Would you preserve me until the end? Would you help me with my faith? My faith is weak. It's teeny, teeny, tiny like a mustard seed. And I wish it wasn't so small. And I feel shaken. So where you go with that question is not yourself. That's what we tend to do. We start listing off what? All the things that would impress everyone else but not Jesus. Oh, well, I, I did okay this week. I, I, I prayed out loud at church or in a prayer meeting, and, and I did this and I did that, and I, I've read my Bible like once this week, and I'm doing, I'm doing okay. I'm doing better. I must, be, I must be saved. That's not where you, you don't go to yourself for confirmation of your own salvation. You go to Jesus, and he will either confirm you or deny you and if he denies you he will say but don't you want to 
Don't you want to be with me? This is what it looks like. So I'm happy to pray with you. If, if I've, by saying that, I've messed you up. Every time I say this, somebody gets messed up. But I'm not willing to not ask the question because my concern is I don't want to get to heaven and find out that one of you was not, was faking it the whole time. I want every single person in this room to be with me forever. I like being your friend. I like being your pastor. I really love it. And so no more fakery. No more pretending. So we're going to worship together. I want to just encourage, I'm going to pray for you. Why don't we stand up? I'm going to pray. Um, I'd like us to worship together like I imagine the first worship service was like after Ananias and Sapphira died. Where we're, we're all kind of going, uh, uh, I, you know, Lord, <laughs> am I okay? In praying that prayer, Lord, would you keep me and preserve me? Keep my faith authentic and real. Hold me until the end. I can't hold myself. I am not in my own hands. I'm in yours. So would you hold me and preserve me? And if there's any falsehood in me, any fakery, any pretending, would you show me so that I can confess it and face it? That there be no self-deceit. I do not want to be like Sardis, right? So I want to pray that and then let's worship God together in that. Holy Spirit, we just ask you to come and uh, expose any self-deceit, any falsehood in us. Now, first, I pray for anyone here who is who has just put on religious activity but not put on Christ. And maybe as we've been reading through these scriptures, there's you have revealed to them that there is. Um, just a deep they have been pretending. God, would you come to them as we worship and stir up faith in their hearts that you are who you say you are, that you are the risen and living King. God, would you put a fire of faith in them that cannot be shaken? God, I pray for the rest of us who are so just constantly tempted to look at the external things and be impressed and constantly work to make everyone else impressed with us. And, and meanwhile, we over and over again just deny the source of the power. God, would you make us deep, real, faithful followers of Christ? God, would you teach us as a community to value the real things, not the fake things. God, we repent of any false judgment of other churches, other movements, other teachers and preachers. God, give us wise judgment, wise discernment that discerns the real things, not the fake things. God, I pray that you would sweep through your church, not just here in Kernersville, but across this country that you would expose falsehood and self-deceit. 
God, I pray that even pastors of giant churches would actually get saved. God, that you would turn things around in this country by exposing falsehood. God, do this in our hearts right now, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.